Good morning. I'm Carl Visser, one of the elders here at City Church. And I want to let you know that this is a family gathering, so there's no Kid City or Big Kid City. Um, there are some coloring pages on the back table if that would be helpful for you. The back of the coloring, coloring pages even has three questions that you can answer in case you do want extra credit after you finish the coloring. So stay tuned and pay attention. Uh, today we're going to push pause on the Ephesians series and start on December Advent on Surprising Joy. And we'll be looking at Malachi chapter 4 that shows us that surprising joy comes out of darkness. Now this is the favorite time in the sermon. It's called Show and Tell. So I like to ride my bike to work and I do that occasionally, and I'm really concerned about people seeing me on my bicycle so they drive around me. And um, during the fall and winter times, my commute in the morning starts at oh dark 30. So it's pitch black outside. So um, I need lights so that people can see, see me. And boy, do I have lights. Uh, for example, I have a wheel-powered generator on the front, so I've got one generator light, and that's got a wire that goes to the rear rack, so I've got a generator light tail light on the back. And then, uh, just to make sure, we do have a helmet-mounted light as well. Now, some people think that Carl probably wears that just because it looks fashionable. Actually not. Um, it has great light, so, and whenever I turn, that's where the light goes. And on the back, an additional feature, it has a tail light there. So, and again, that's on top of my head so drivers can see the tallest part of me. And then sometimes I like to have another tail light on the back just because you really can't ever have too many tail lights. So, anyway, uh, so there's at least two headlights in the morning and at least two tail lights, and I do have one headlight in reserve on the front, and this is the optional tail light on the back. So, okay, so we're done with show and tell. I can put this back now. Thank you. I would turn the lights on, but then I wouldn't be able to see for about two minutes, so <laughs> that's why I can't do that. Ironically, my bike and I are probably more visible in the morning, in the pitch black, than on my afternoon commute during the daylight time. Because when there's no other lights around, you can see those, well, only a few of them are flashing. You can see those lights pretty well from a long distance away. And you can tell by the multitude of lights that I have mounted on that bicycle that I'm fearful of my lights going out halfway through my ride to work before sunrise. If all the lights were to fail on that bike in the dark, that's pretty scary. How would I proceed? How do I get to work? Do you just hop off the bike and leave the bike there? Will the bike be back when it, I get back? And so I need those lights. So in today's text, Malachi paints a story of darkness, and he is addressing people living in darkness. The passage in Malachi represents some of the last words from the Old Testament prophets. Jerusalem and the glorious temple built by Solomon was destroyed years ago. 
Many Jews had been forcibly carried off into Babylon for 70 long years as Jeremiah had prophesied. Then some of the Israelites that left uh, for Babylon or were carried off to Babylon had returned to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple, but it was on a much smaller scale. As a matter of fact, some of the older priests and Levites that had seen the original glorious temple of Solomon actually shed tears of disappointment when they saw the foundation of the much smaller temple in Ezra 3. After Malachi, the word of the Lord to his people went silent for 400 years. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would be light to us, that you would show us how you are at work in the world, how you are at work through your Savior, and how you desire to shed light in our hearts and in our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just want to start by reading, there's only six uh, verses in Malachi 4, so I'll just read those. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But as for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this was a time of darkness for God's people. Their minds were filled with questions. Why is there no word from the Lord? Has the Lord disappeared or gone away? Why is he silent? Has the Lord forgotten his people? Does he not know that we desperately need his comfort and his direction? So this morning, again, as I mentioned, we're going to see how Malachi starts with a dark canvas, then tells us about a coming messenger of good news, and then splashes some future light on that dark canvas. So the darkness is woven kind of all through this passage. In the beginning, he talks about a burning oven that is setting the evildoers ablaze. In the middle, he talks about the wicked are described as ashes trod into the soil by the righteous under their feet. And then the closing phrase of the Old Testament then describes a possible decree of utter destruction on the land. So again, just to read those from uh, verse 1, 3, and the very end of 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And then finally, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Malachi mentions a specific day here in this passage. 
What is that day? That is the day of judgment. In the preceding chapter, Malachi 3, in verse 5, he says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So there is a day of judgment coming. It is one final day. History is marching straight toward that day. It is an inescapable day. We will be present for that day, each and every one of us. No personal invitation is required. You don't have to open up an evite to get it. Uh, All humankind shows up. Every race, every nationality, every ethnic group, every tribe, every tongue, every tongue will appear. Nobody's going to be late. Everybody's going to be on time. Nobody's going to forget this appointment on your calendar. I don't care where your phone is, if it's out of service, whatever, not a problem. Traffic on I-35 will not be a problem. And the good news is there's no tolls either on the way to the Day of Judgment. Malachi is going to be there. I'll be there. You will be there. Your neighbor from across the street will be there. Now, Zephaniah the prophet fleshes out a fuller perspective on what this Day of Judgment looks like in chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of darkness and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, those of you that are working on coloring pages, there are some clouds. You're not supposed to paint those uh, blue. They're actually supposed to be painted black. So that's the dark clouds that Stephanie is talking about. Now, some of you may say this day hardly ever gets mentioned in conversation today. Uh, You may not have picked it up much in your social media posts that you've been looking at recently. You might uh, hear more about the Dallas Cowboys football instead of the Day of Judgment. Well, you live in the Metroplex. I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do about that. You're just, it's the Cowboys. It's there, okay? Now, why is this day important? Can a Christian just check the I don't care very much box option? No, the Bible clearly teaches the Day of Judgment. The Old Testament prophets, Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, all acknowledge the Day of Judgment. Grudem's Bible Doctrine lists four things that are helpful to me regarding the Day of Judgment. It does uh, kind of satisfy that kind of inward need that we have for justice. We want everything to be reconciled and tied up neatly, and that Day of Judgment will will do that. Ultimately, no sin or injustice will be left unpunished. 
It also relates to forgiveness. I can forgive those who sin against me because I know that God will avenge any wrongdoing done to me on that day of judgment. In Romans 12, 19, uh, the Lord says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that will ultimately be done on the day of judgment. In regard to evangelism, when I contemplate the awful nature of that final judgment, telling my neighbor about Jesus is a more compelling option. And then finally, it just as a motive for righteous living, uh, Grudem says, For believers, the final judgment is an incentive to faithfulness and good works, not as a mean of earning forgiveness of sins, but as a means of gaining greater eternal reward. So again, I want to emphasize that righteous living is not earning one's salvation because all my righteous deeds are filthy rags in the sight of the Lord, but those righteous deeds flow from salvation and will be rewarded. In addition, the power for righteous living flows from the Holy Spirit, not from my human motive. Okay, now, some of you may object to all this stuff and say, Carl, um, this is supposed to be an Advent sermon. What does the Day of Judgment have to do with Jesus? Well, that's a great question. Jesus is the one ordained by God, the Father, to be the judge on that day. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul instructs Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. So Christ Jesus will judge the living and the dead. Now we typically think of Advent as looking forward to Jesus' first coming. That's the baby in the manger stuff. Well, today we get a twofer. We get to also point toward Christ's second coming, his second Advent, which is the day of judgment. So there is darkness, again, kind of in multiple levels in this passage. In the present generation, for Malachi's hearers and forward, there's that absence of the word of the Lord, that darkness that's removed from the earth. And then there's that future day of judgment that Malachi refers to as well. So how about some good news? Could anybody give Malachi's hearers some good news? What is there to look forward to? Well, Malachi tells us that there is a messenger who is to come. So it's interesting, or rather ironic, that Malachi, who means messenger, talks about another messenger coming. So Malachi says there will be another Malachi. So anyway, that's a very helpful thing. Malachi specifically mentions the law in verse 4 and the prophets in verse 5, which is Elijah. Both the law and the prophets foretell a coming Messiah. And Malachi artfully ties the law and the prophets together here with a reference to Mount Horeb. So Moses received the law, the Ten Commandments. Well, you think of it as Mount Sinai, but I guess Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. So that's where the law came down. But Elijah the prophet ran from the wicked queen Jezebel to hide in a cave near Mount Horeb. So both of these are tied together. Malachi's listeners didn't want to miss this Messiah, the son of righteousness, so they would know that Elijah would come before the Messiah. Now, I like map voice directions. You know, the old thing, in a thousand feet, exit right to exit number, whatever, highway 183, northbound, so on and so forth. I am not a spontaneous driver. 
I like to know in advance, you, this is our, an exit to the right, get in the right lane. I don't like to hurry on my driving. I want to know and find those and look in the mirror and, and all that stuff. So that, I like the voice directions. Tell me in advance where I'm going, I'll get in that lane. And Malachi is doing the same thing to let them know that the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah is coming, but Elijah comes first. Just like my phone apps provides advanced directions, Malachi explains that one sign of the approaching Savior is Elijah. So who was Elijah? Well, he was an Old Testament prophet during the reign of the wicked king Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel. And his name means, my God is Yahweh. And he figures prominently, if you want to go home and read about Elijah, go read 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 10. That's kind of, he uh, shades quite a bit of scripture. So what's up with the reference to Elijah? Was Elijah going to be resurrected to be the messenger of the Lord? No, but somehow he would be like Elijah in some way. It was interesting in the Gospels that it was a common question. If anyone showed some spiritual leadership, uh, they would ask them, tell us, are you the Elijah who's coming? And in the Jewish Passover celebration, uh, even today, which is the Seder, the front door is kept open to let Elijah come in. So the Jews rightly understand Malachi's prophecy to keep an eye out for Elijah. But again, just to let us know who that Elijah is, Jesus tells us that John the Baptist fulfilled Malachi's prophecy. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God, or in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So, through the prophecy of Malachi, God promised to send an Elijah before the Messiah. Jesus declared that John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy. So, as recorded in the book of Joshua, God's good and many promises will all come to pass. Not one word of the all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel during the time of Joshua had failed, all came to pass. Now there are still some prophecies yet to be fulfilled, but when I see those prophecies that are fulfilled, it gives me joy that God is a promise-keeping God and helps me feel confident that he will fulfill those other prophecies as well. So John the Baptist is the Elijah messenger prophesied by the messenger Malachi, but who's coming is John the Baptist announcing. In verse 2, Malachi introduces the concept of the son of righteousness, which is the opposite of all the darkness we've been covering. So if you've got your coloring page, the son there, that is the son of righteousness, and you get to paint that with bright colors, okay? Malachi 4.2, But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. 
Now, if my puny little bicycle lights that I showed earlier are easier to see in darkness, how much more does the glorious light of Jesus, who is Malachi's coming Messiah, shine brighter even from a distance of 400 years of darkness? The first word in that verse is but. So that's kind of a, a warning to us as listeners. Hey, there's a big pivot coming ahead. There's a sharp turn in the course. Malachi started out talking about darkness, and now he's pivot, pivoting to talk about joy and light. And that but is reminiscent of that similar but that we saw in Ephesians 2. Paul started out the chapter with this discussing how we're dead in sin and trespasses, and you can hear that minor chord in the accompanying music. And then comes, bam, this resounding but. In Ephesians 2 4. But God, rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. So, who is this Son of Righteousness in Malachi 4 2? It's Jesus. Okay, you probably already figured that out, but I just want to clarify. So, the same source that incinerates the arrogant and the evildoers on the day of judgment during Jesus' second coming is the one who provides light and healing in his wings to those who believe in his name at his first coming. The Son of Righteousness is a joyful setting. This refers to his first coming, of course. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, describes Jesus as the sunrise from on high in Luke 1. So the Son of Righteousness in Malachi is described as the sunrise from on high in Luke 1.78. Zechariah prophesies about the role of his son John, setting the stage for the ministry of the Son of God, Jesus, in Luke chapter 1. So this is, again, John or Zechariah, who is John's father, talking about John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, which is Jesus, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, which is Jesus, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." So I just love all the effusive description, the characteristics of Jesus that are mentioned here. The Most High, the Lord, salvation for His people, forgiveness for their sins, tender and merciful, the sunrise from on high, the light to those in darkness, guiding our feet into the way of peace. Is it possible to read this description of Jesus as the sunrise from on high in a monotone voice without any display of joy. I know that uh, Ben, during Big Kid City, was having uh, the students there do the Bible verses in their best robot voice. And that you just, you can't do that in a robot voice. It doesn't work, okay? As a matter of fact, Malachi says that this should cause joy to overflow in our souls and hearts right after he mentions the son of righteousness. He said that we should, the righteous should go out leaping like calves from a stall. And spring calves do this kind of frisky jumping around. 
And the most recent example I've seen of that is uh, we have a dog at our house right now. His name is Taquito. Um, our son-in-law, Jose, and our daughter, Sarah, are in apartment transition right now, and they're living with us for a few months. So Taquito is also living with us. Now, if you sit down on the bench where all of Taquito's walking stuff is kept, and you just kind of jangle the walking leash, he goes crazy. He becomes a picture of frenzied, unrestrained joy. Now, I, I don't think dogs can smile, or I don't think Taquito does. Maybe your dog can, but I don't think Taquito does. But Taquito clearly communicates joy in a full-bodied way. There is no single part of his little body that is unused in expressing his exuberant joy at the prospect for going outside and going for a walk. Okay, there is, there's no part of Taquito that says you can't do this. It's, actually, it's hard to get his leash uh, on him. Uh, you have to tell him to sit down and, and stay. And he does kind of reluctantly, but his tail is still wagging. It's like, okay, I'll sit down, but I, can I still wag my tail? Is that okay? So our salvation through the bright and glorious Son of God is a source of full-body joy for us. That's the point that Malachi is making here. There's still some tension between the darkness and the light in this passage. How do you reconcile the surprising joy, salvation, and light with the dark day of judgment? So again, the first coming of Jesus he lived a perfect and righteous life as the son of righteousness. He died on the cross. He atoned for the sins of all believers for all times, which results in our full-body joy. The second coming of Jesus is a judgment day. Everyone shows up for this day, but it's kind of a day of darkness. Believers and unbelievers will be there. However, there are two distinct groups on judgment day. So group number one, I guess I've been at the airport too much, so I call them groups. Anyway, group number one is for the arrogant and evildoers, or in Matthew 25, Jesus says goats. Blazing wrath of God is poured out for every sin and every misdeed committed for that group. Group two, the other one, are his sheep who fear Jesus and have their saving faith in his atoning death. The wrath of God is already poured out on Jesus on the cross for the sins of believers. In Romans 8.1, it says, There is therefore no condemnation, underlined, for those who are in Christ Jesus. I added the underline. Jesus concludes his teaching to the disciples on the end times in Matthew 25. And he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those sheep on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he goes on a little bit later to describe the unbelievers. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
In summary, then, Jesus wraps up that section on the end times by saying, and these, the goats on his left, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So again, just to be clear, unbelievers are on a path for, headed for judgment day that leads to eternal punishment. Believers, however, are on a path to judgment day that leads to eternal life present with the Lord. So as a result, as a believer, we do not fear the day of judgment because we are in Christ and we are covered by Christ and we are protected by Christ. In closing, it's helpful to ask, what is the source of my joy? Where am I looking for joy and satisfaction? Now, personally, during the holiday season, sometimes I kind of feel the darkness stealthily creeping into my soul. I get anxious about the holiday activities. There seem to be a lot of them. And I fret that there's not enough time to privately and quietly recharge my introvert batteries somewhere. And there may not be enough time for me to ride my bicycle. I know that sounds shocking to you all, and you are very concerned for me. But that's just the way my soul reacts. But what that really means is I am looking for my personal comfort to be my joy. Okay, again, some of you may not quite understand what that's like. Folks, it's not any different than when your two-year-old misses their nap. Okay, It's the same thing. So yeah, Carl Visser is a two-year-old who may be missing his nap. That's called sin. And you know what that's like. It's not really a very pretty picture, is it? So I guess it's been actually very freeing to see that I am not finding joy in Jesus when I have those anxieties, when I have those fears about that. Um, but I'm putting my hope and joy into a comfortable life. So confessing that helps me kind of actually anticipate the holiday season. Hey, it'll be all right, because it's not about me and getting enough time on my bicycle. So, um, now, the rest of you, where are the parts of your soul where darkness is kind of trying to creep in? Is it travel and family visits and gift buying and giving, or maybe it's loneliness? I don't know. Your heart may not be leaping with joy like Taquito is. Maybe you're feeling the darkness part, but that joy just isn't bubbling up. But Malachi shows that the surprising joy can come out of the backdrop of darkness. Deep-seated joy recognizes that the Son of Righteousness, Jesus, has come on earth to take away my sin and save me from judgment on that great and awesome day of the Lord. The barren, lifeless, temporal things of the world will eventually burn up and turn to ash like stubble. These things can't bring everlasting joy and satisfaction. May the Lord turn our wayward hearts from the barren, dry, lifeless activities of the world to seek joy in His tender mercies and salvation. Malachi highlights the joyful coming of Jesus, Son of Righteousness. May this reality be the source for our joy this month. Christian, find your joy in Jesus. Heavenly Father, we uh, delight to know that you are uh, our satisfaction. You are our joy. Lord, I pray that as darkness tries to seep into our souls, that, Lord, uh, we will look to you, that we will recognize 
the great joy of the salvation that you have provided for us. And we will delight in that. And uh, Lord, I ask that this Advent season would bring us joy in spite of whatever activities we are in or the lack of activities, whichever way it is. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.